that second album should have been huge. That second album had how many singles, potential hit singles on there? January, On Fire, um, uh, Tomorrow, uh, Breaking Down Again. Breaking Down Again, why wasn't that a top 10 record, you know? Because it was David Cassidy. That's the shame there. I guess if somebody were to do a deep dive at RCA uh, about that story, uh, I bet you find that those people were as unconvinced about David Cassidy being an artistic artist as they would have been during his Partridge Family and Bell Records years. Right. You know, I, the prejudice, in other words, that prejudice followed him. Right. So it's like, okay, let's get it out there. The fans want it, let's get it out there. There is a fan fever with the Partridge Family and David Cassidy that keeps getting stoked whenever there's a reissue. What does that tell you? This is the David Cassidy Connections Podcast with your host, Louise Poynton. Hello and welcome. Today, my guest is Mike Ragogna. A young obsession with the Partridge family, and especially the music, led to him pursuing a career as a singer-songwriter, working with producers Terry Cashman and Tommy West. Mike admits he never would have had a music career had it not been for David Cassidy. Born in New York, his impressive resume includes working for record labels EMI, Universal, BMG and Razor and Tie, producing compilations and reissues for hundreds of acts. As compilations producer at Razor and Tie, who reissued the Partridge Family albums on CD, Mike assembled a David Cassidy collection of his RCA material in 1996 and he takes us through that process. In our conversation, we cover a range of topics, Mike explaining the music publishing concept. He examines the obstacles behind David's desire to be accepted as a serious musician and makes a passionate plea for David's unreleased back catalogue to be put out in a deluxe box set. He explains the genius of lyricist Tony Romeo why he considers Sound Magazine one of the greatest pop albums of all time, and offers an analysis of David's RCA albums. And amusingly, he recalls not knowing exactly how to break the ice when he met David Cassidy and Donny Osmond in a bathroom. But first, we talk about his introduction to music and early influences. I didn't really know what, you know, good, quote-unquote, or, or hip, hip, hip music was. I didn't care. I mean, my mother was listening to Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, uh, Judy Garland, things like that. And I knew I didn't really, I mean, you know, <laughs> I liked it, but I didn't like it. Tony Bennett, I think, was the closest one. Like the later, the pizza parlor music I liked, but not the earlier, very crooning, uh, not the earlier, very elegant stuff. But I was a kid. I didn't want to, you know, a fifth dimension helped get me into pop music more. Glenn Campbell, we, I had Wichita Lineman by the time I get to Phoenix, all that stuff. So David was no stretch. We don't realise at the time just how big an influence music when we're five, six, seven actually has on our lives, the direction we end up taking. And there's no defence, there's no block. You're just open to everything. Yeah. You haven't been taught hip. What is hip? You don't even know the, you don't know the concept until maybe you're a teenager. I was in, God, was it fifth grade, sixth grade? There was a girl who brought in a Partridge Family record and it looked cool. And when, you, when they played it, it was like, oh, my God, that's really great. Kids were kids, and we liked the music that we liked. We didn't have any kind of, you know, any kind of judgment on that. I know we're focusing on David, but the whole Partridge Family theme, 
that was Vietnam War. Every night you turn on your television and you'd see reports of the, you know, Americans dying and a, a war and to a kid, what is that? Except something very scary and it's killing people. So then you have the Partridge family. You have the Brady. That's why Friday nights on ABC in New York, in uh, in the United States was really important to me. You know, it brought home the concept of, oh, you can still here's an escape, but you can also have family. And then many of us, because we were latchkey kids, and because it was a turmoil, a, a very tumultuous time, it was a grounding experience. Partridge family was our family. <laughs> it was family. Yeah. Lost in Space to me was also a family, you know, the, the family Robinson. They were, families were emphasized on television. So if a kid was left alone to their own devices, or if they were watching nightly television, you could be guaranteed they'd be watching some sort of family show within the lineup of multiple of the three channels. Yeah. So it's not, a, you know, it's not a big stretch when you get the Partridge family. It's like, what is that? Suddenly yeah. we had music that meant something to us yeah. and something we could relate to. Did you get the we monkeys did. over there? Yeah, we did. I didn't connect with the monkeys. Like I, my sister likes the monkeys, mm. but I didn't connect to that. Uh, Partridge Family was, I guess, more quote unquote real, <laughs> you know, and funny. The personalities were great. And David wasn't, his, his personality wasn't fully developed that first year, a would-be superstar. And then they developed that storyline within the first year. And I guess by the second year, uh, they're playing Vegas. Uh, well, the first year they played Vegas, but the second year, you know, they're, they're making albums with whales, but it's it evolved into this. We've made it, I think, from the second year on. And you can even tell by the vibe of the, the show, it was more assertive. It was, you, you had a show, although the first ep a season had an episode about run, the runaways with Point Me in the Direction of Albuquerque, the second season had the, the, the Save the Whales theme. It had the, the visit to the uh, Indian Reservation. For me, the show was really as, it was fun. It was a cool little ridiculous family who were playing with playing with each other in a way that a family might and you'd get all of these high brow you'd start getting these higher themes um they were taking risks more risks i guess and then i don't know what happened the third year and on it was sort of like well now we're situation comedy but the first couple of years i thought they were doing some making some statements in addition to their show being for entertainment well they were taking everything to to a new level not only musically but also they were addressing everyday family issues. You'll remember, I don't remember, what was the name of the Rob Reiner character that uh, Susan Day dated, that Lori dated? Uh, Snake. Snake, Snake, right. <laughs> we saw the extreme of like, every parent's nightmare is that the daughter or the son is gonna date somebody that they don't like. And then when you say Snake, it's sort of like- Never judge a book by its cover. And that's the lesson there too. He was a, he was a softy. It was a sad end, and that was a sad ending. You know, when you think about it, it's like, well, this won't work out. You did say that you wouldn't have had a music career if it hadn't been for, for David. I just wonder how strong your childhood obsession with the Partridge family was. I, I grew up in New York City. I was basically a street kid on Second Avenue. The Partridge family was a bit of a rescue. I was going to Catholic school, uh, this place called Epiphany. Before that, it, it was sort of like a little poorer neighborhood where I went to school, a place called Sacred Hearts, which was on 33rd Street. Epiphany was on 22nd Street, which was way more upscale to where we were living. I, I, we didn't have a lot of money in my family. My parents basically, they fought a lot. So the Partridge family, as an extension, I guess, of the next cool thing after Lost in Space went off the air, was to have a, an, an alternate family. And the Partridge family filled in that, that, that space. It was the year before the Brady Bunch aired. 
But even then, at my young age, I realized the Brady Bunch was kind of like a fluffy little, you know, it was comedy. I, I mean, I, I, I watched it for entertainment. You know, I guess I would have been the age of, of Peter uh, Brady. I, you know, I, it, was, it was fun. But then when, the, when they added the Partridge Family for, I guess, uh, 1970, I remember seeing the pilot and I remember watching the show. But before the show, uh, I believe I had the album because one of the kids, one of the kids in my class brought in the album uh, to play. Partridge Family was probably the most played in the classroom. We had the Partridge Family. We had uh, the Carpenters Close to You album, I think. Um, uh, someone brought in Tapestry, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Parsley Satro's Mary in Time. Anyway, the, those, those were the records we brought in, but the Partridge Family was the one everybody kind of gravitated to, everybody in the class. My obsession with the show was because I kept getting deeper and deeper into the feeling like it was the escape. I was in that family unit, you know? I wasn't David <laughs> and I wasn't Danny and I wasn't, but I was like, I just felt like I was part of the family and some extended silent member <laughs> a million miles away. And it was great because the music in it, what caught me more than any other show, I mentioned the Brady Bunch before, what caught me was that there was, there was music in this and it felt more real. The music got me immediately, maybe not so much the first episode, um, but as it moved on, there were songs like, I really want to know you, um, only a moment ago, and I'll get to that because that was written by Cashman and West, and I'll, I'll get into that in a bit. I guess in the early Point Me in the Direction of Albuquerque, Find Peace in Your Soul was actually, there was a great, there were great songs that didn't make the album also that I really liked a lot. I, I liked everything I'd heard on, the, on that show. And I related, I don't know why, I'm a kid. Why would I relate to the lyrics of this stuff? But Point Me in the Direction of Albuquerque, I Can Feel Your Heartbeat, it had a good, it had a good beat. But it, the, the production pulled me in. And then I just kept getting, it was like, okay, well, let's learn how to play these on an instrument. So then I would buy, I would go to Macy's on 33rd Street and um, uh, 6th Avenue uh, on Broadway. Uh, and I would buy uh, the, the, sheet, the, the music, the sheet music, the books. There was a piano, you can play the music out, uh, on, uh, you know, if you play piano and, and the books are right there. You know, it was a great marketing uh, way that they did that. The record, then they had a record section that was in another part of the store, which was kind of odd. You'd have to like, well, I think you had to walk across to the other side of the store to buy a record, but the music, is because the musical instruments were on, on one side, which was the pianos and guitars, etc. I was preferring that music to a lot of the music I was listening to. Yes, I loved Close to You by the, the album, Close to You by the Carpenters. Yes, I loved all my old Fifth Dimension records. I still, you know, I would still play them. Simon and Garfunkel, all really important records to me. But the Partridge Family, I went out and I bought more things. All the kids in the class started trading bubblegum cards. So you see, we're getting more involved. Uh, we're getting visuals. We're holding these cards and showing the visuals of our, of the, at least the, the Yellow series was the first you'd hold memorabilia of your favorite moments of the Partridge family. I, there were fan magazines. I never got into the fan magazines, but I saw them at the newsstands and, and they, they'd already promoted, they'd started promoting David like crazy. So you'd see Partridge family, Partridge family, David Cassidy, David Cassidy all over the place. Where, whenever you would go into like, in my case, it would be lenses um, on First Avenue and 20th Street, like right off of 20th Street, right near Stuyvesant Town. I can remember exactly all, all of that stuff. And it became a fun thing with the kids in the class. I mean, we didn't know that we should really be listening to Eric Clapton. We didn't, you know, Derek and the Dominoes or something. We didn't know that we should be listening to Almond Brothers or any of these things that later Zeppelin. Our, our older brothers and sisters might have liked that stuff, but we were still kids, you know? And I think the nature of a kid is to be open to all types of music. If they like it, they like it. And then later on, you put the filters on. 
And maybe with me personally, I just never applied the filters properly. <laughs> I, and to this day, I like all kinds of music. I like anything. I, I really, I can find value in, in virtually anything. I think some people may think I have no taste because of that, but, but in a lot of ways, I just, I try to, I look for the thing that I really like in the music. Um, so therefore I like jazz, I like classical, I like blues, I like um, R&B a lot, I like uh, pop. You know, when you start getting to 2021, I'm an old person now, so 2021 music <laughs> is a little rough for me. And your enthusiasm is just pouring out here because <laughs> it's obviously taking you back to a happy time in your life. It was like yesterday. Yeah, no, it was very happy. Well, it was the alternate family. Yes. You could, you know, if, you're, if your mother and father were, if your mother was on her second Manhattan <laughs> and becoming a totally different person than you recognized, and they're screaming and your parents are screaming at each other. It's like, okay, let's go listen to our Partridge Family album, yes, you know? Yes, that was your escape. For me personally, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a pretty, a pretty. I wouldn't say, well, I would sometimes say toxic relationship uh, uh, that they had, but it was, uh, it was pretty, it was a good thing the Partridge Family were around during that period, you know, as far as music, because music, my mother was musical. My mother was an entertainer in New York. Uh, and then when she died, uh, she died in the 90s, uh, I found out from my aunt, she also was a dancer. And it's like, well, why didn't my mother ever tell me this? And then I realized she'd always had this very schvelt, very thin, almost modelish body. And then also she was a Merle, Merle Norman, Merle Norman Cosmetics uh, model. You know, I knew peripherally all this stuff was happening. So I got, the, I got music from her. And then also in Epiphany, thankfully, I was taught harmony. And I was taught how to sing better and in a choir by Mildred Honer. Mildred Honer being part of the Honer harmonica and musical instrument dynasty. And she also ran the children's opera in New York um, for which I auditioned, um, help, help the Globlinks. I didn't quite make it. So uh, I wasn't good enough. But on the other hand, I, what did I do then? I probably went home and listened to the, the, to the Partridge family, right? Um, I had a girlfriend in eighth grade. She taught me how to play guitar. She taught me how to play acoustic guitar. And I, some of the first songs I learned on acoustic guitar were more like the, fo the folk rockers. Um, Gordon Lightfoot, um, not the old Gordon Lightfoot, but things like uh, Sundown, um, you know, that, all that type of stuff. Uh, she exposed me to Joni Mitchell. She gave me, oh God, uh, Ladies of the Canyon. I had a Judy Collins album, uh, the one with uh, both sides now on it, which also was one of the albums that one the kids brought into class. So I'd had a musical background and here I was with all these songs and I was trying to, I was learning how to play the songs on guitar. I was learning how to play songs and then some of these songs were Partridge Family songs. So I started learning how to play these things. And like I told you earlier on piano, I, I was learning from the sheet music books. I guess by the time, by seventh grade or whatever, I was looking at things like I wanted to know more about what, what the music, what was going on there. And then I just wanted to know more about what was behind the scenes. And what is a better way for me to delve into my fantasy world of being one of, you know, <laughs> not being a part of the Partridge family at that point. I was becoming the Partridge family in my world, only to me, not to anyone else, uh, the expert, you know, the Partridge family. I wanted to know everything about it. So I would start calling Screen Gems, the two associated in the United States, the two associated publishing companies were Screen Gems and Cold Gems. They took on publishing aspects. And I guess for your audience, if they don't know what uh, publishing is, publishing is if you have a song on an album, there are two ways that the songwriter of the, of, the, of the song makes money. One is through the uh, sale of the record. There's a certain arrangement uh, that where, where the, the songwriter makes a certain amount. Uh, I guess in those days, maybe it was something like two cents or five cents or whatever. I, don't, I think it was pretty low. That's just from sales. 
and this is going to be a little confusing maybe to your listeners, but this is, this is kind of cool. There are two ways, two revenue streams that come from a song. One is for songwriting and one is for publishing. So don't think of it as far as 100% divided in half. Don't think of it as that. Think of it as two 100%. So the songwriter, normally, if they have a song, quote, published, unquote, that means the song was recorded and has been released uh, on an album or has been on television or whatever. That's, that is when it's been released. And technically, you'd have a different kind of rights negotiation if it were on, if it were televised or if it were in a movie. So let's not go there. That's a little confusing. Let's think of the record. So the record, like I said, has two revenue sources per each song as far as from the concept of how a songwriter makes money through what's called publishing rights. So they get signed to a publishing company or they could keep the publishing to themselves. Like, let's pretend I'm Mike Ragonia. I wrote a song called um, Home, which I did, which was a duet with Dobie Gray. Uh, that song has, I wrote it, so I have 100% of the publishing, but I also have... Um, my publishing company, Traffic Beat Music, as a publishing company. I'm not signed to my publishing company, but I claim my publishing because I don't have a publisher. Two revenue streams for every, for every song on that album then. Now I'm going to confuse the issue a little bit more, which is a third revenue stream. That third revenue stream is the first thing I mentioned, which is from the sale of the pressed record. The other two revenue streams for publishing is mainly from airplay. So let's say I think I love you, right? Tony Romeo wrote the song. Tony Romeo, that song was signed to Screen Gems. So Tony Romeo makes 100% of the publishing. Screen Gems makes 100% of the publishing. From the airplay, from the airplay. From the sale of the record, the publishing company normally oversaw the mechanics of all of that. In fact, that's called mechanical royalties. The mechanics of that normally went through a publishing company, and then the publishing company would pay you, right? As opposed to the an organization called, remember I mentioned ASCAP and BMI earlier, Screen Gems and Cold Gems? So those are controlled, those are performance rights agencies where if you belong to one or the other, it doesn't matter which, you would get paid for the perform the airplay and the performance of the song, but I'm not gonna get, we're not gonna go there, like live performance, we're not gonna go there. We're just gonna stay with the sale of the record and the airplay of the record. The airplay of the record, let's say for Tony Romeo, got him a lot of money because that, that record was played everywhere. But also the album sold, well, how many millions? Whatever it was, um, and I mean, in, and counting because it's been reissued and, and really, and, and it's a down, I guess it's, it's, it's downloadable. So the sales that represents sales and then the publishing company would, would distribute because you'd either be signed to the publishing company, right? Or you'd own your own publishing and you'd handle it yourself. But in the case of Tony Romeo, it was Screen Gems. So Screen Gems would then pay Tony for whatever the amount uh, of, was his share that he negotiated with, with Screen Gems of the song. But what that did was knowing that getting that type of knowledge for me allowed me to then get even further into the whole publishing company concept. I was writing songs at that point then. Hey, let's place my songs with a publisher. Look how it worked for the Partridge family. Hey, 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 I'm going to place my, my latest silly song in a second. Uh, I started calling Screen Gems slash Cold Gems. They're the same entity. They just have different names, different different business entities with regards to performance rights and, and uh, sales. So I'd be calling Screen Gems and I'd be making friends along the line because I think I might've presented myself as older than what, 12, 13, whatever I was at the time. And I was making friends. People legitimately were thinking that I was from whatever. At, so, at some point, I might've been calling a little too often. So they started offloading me to the songwriters 
because they thought, you know what, the songwriters might get a kick out of this, I think is what they were thinking on their end. I, put, I got in contact with uh, Tony and Frank Romeo, his brother Frank. I ended up talking often to Frank and then occasionally to Tony. Cashman West, you see, this is where the Cashman West story comes in at the end of eighth grade. Again, relative to my getting further and further into understanding what the credits are, who the songwriters are, I reached out to the, to the Cashman West people. I think Screen Gems also gave me their number. I made friends with Norma Oshinsky. Norma was the woman who was their assistant and also at the front desk. And she, she answered the phones, did everything for them. Cashman and West were a production team and a songwriting team, fresh from being Cashman Bastillion West, which was a folk trio. Terry Cashman, one of the members, having written Sunday Will Never Be the Same with Gene Pastilli. Tommy West joins that little troupe. But that's when they started recording as a trio. They, they did uh, a few albums together. Wes Farrell comes into the mix because Gene Pastilli, after recording a project called the Buchanan Brothers, where they had the hit Medicine Man, and they had Son of a Lovin' Man, which appeared mysteriously. It was like a minor hit, and it appeared mysteriously in a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Literally out of nowhere. It's like, what is that doing in there? And I remember watching the movie. I had no idea that was going to be in there. And then suddenly there it is. Quite a deal. But after the Buchanan brothers, Gene left. And basically it was Tommy West, or Tommy Picardo was his name, and uh, Terry Cashman, Dennis Minogue. They hooked up with Wes Farrell, who produced them as a group called Central Park West or CPW. And that's how Wes got, in, got involved initially with uh, Cashman and West. Uh, they were the first ones to record Candida, by the way. Uh, it was never released, but Wes did do that song with them. Anyway, so then when he got the assignment for the Partridge family, he ended up bringing in writers and songwriters and people that he'd worked with. And Cashman and West were a couple of them also. All right, here's one story. I'm not going to bore everybody with all these. Uh, there are just a billion stories from that era as a kid. But there's this one, this one thing that's kind of important, which is I would get the release information. By that point, after the first two albums were out, Sound Magazine hadn't come out yet. In fact, they were still kind of figuring out where that track list was going to land. I was calling Arista, and Arista referred me back to, they didn't want to really, they weren't giving me the track list. So I was determined to get the, that darn track list. So I called Screen Gems. I thought, hmm, maybe I could weasel, weasel it out of them. And I did. Erwin Schuster was somebody, uh, the publisher over there, who I frequently spoke to. But Irwin was wonderful, and Irwin would get on the phone once in a while with me, and he gave me the track list for the initial sound magazine. You know, just so people know, uh, Whale Song was originally on that initial track list, and so was Cashman & West's It's Time That I Knew You Better. Come On Love was supposed to be on that album also. So I went to Cashman & West, I called Norma, and I said, I've got the list for the, for the new album, and you know, Dennis and Tommy's a song are on it. So she was like, oh, that's wonderful, and all that. I went to school with Joe, uh, Joey D'Imperio. Joe D'Imperio was an A&R guy over at RCA Records. He, he was pals. They all were pals with each other. He was pals with Wes Farrell. He was pals with... But Joe, I remember at one point told me, having a conversation with him, I said, yeah, you know, this is, this is great. There's, a, you know, Shirley, Shirley Jones, uh, the whale song is going to be on there. And he said, no, it's not going to be on there. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, I had a conversation with Wes and he was asking, he was basically, I guess, asking around for advice as far as whether he should put a song with Shirley on that album or not. Joe explained, the focus is on David. So the, it's not really, having Shirley on there would have been distracting. So he gave the advice. He was one of the people who gave the advice. Yeah, don't include that because you'll confuse the audience. You know, think about those days. It's all about marketing. Joe was a very good man. Yeah, I mean, he didn't do anything bad here. All he did was give his expert advice as far as if you're going to focus on David... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, then uh, then you can't do that. That's the sidebar. Where do you rate the Sound Magazine album? Oh, that's my favorite one. Yeah, sonically, every song on there to me is perfect. I think that that's a perfect sequence. I think that that's a marvelous album. I think that they knew they had a hit with the first two albums. I think they knew they had a hit with those first, with a hit group with the first two albums, and they didn't want to blow it. So they really wanted to make that. Those two albums, in a lot of ways, seem to me like how can we make the songs on the television show the best they can sound, right? Whereas they knew then they had a star with David Cassidy and then all of a sudden Sound Magazine, right? And then with Sound Magazine, they started, Wes started to approach those recordings differently. And also that overlap, as in let's make a real album that can overlap a lot of stuff. When you hear stuff like uh, I'm on my way back home, Summer Days, which of course everybody knows was recorded on Partridge Family Dime, but was supposed to have been a David Cassidy single. Um, and then they found out about it and was like, hey, wait a minute, that's a Partridge Family song. You get that back in the Partridge Family uh, uh, catalog. That's a great album. To me, that's one of, one of the great pop albums of all time. Uh, seriously, you go from song to song to song. It's like there's no weak moment. Are you aware of any unreleased Partridge Family tracks that nobody is aware of? I think it's pretty much been covered because everybody has done a really, uh, has done really good detective work on that. Between, between Lisa Sutton, you guys, everybody who contributed, it seems like to, the, to your book, it seems like the hunting, and I think there were people behind the scenes who were also acknowledging what that stuff was. I don't know how much of the Cherish album um, or the Sound Magazine album crossover as far as tracks. My theory is that a lot of that, because those are so well manicured, well textured, well produced, super produced albums, is that there was, there's material there. And I'll bet you, not filed under Partridge Family, but maybe under David Cassidy, I'll bet you there's some stuff hiding that has not been unearthed. Although, like I said, I don't know for sure, but I'll bet you there are some titles in there that, that, uh, uh, that are not so, much, not so much leftovers from the Cherish album, but stuff that got lost in the mix between the two albums, where at least there were basic tracks where David is singing over a track where they were trying stuff out. I'll bet you that stuff is still around. But other than that, no, I don't know. You're the one who enlightened me about the RCA, uh, about the, uh, the leftover tracks from um, uh, Dreams of Nothing More uh, album. But as far as the unreleased material from the Partridge family, there are songs on there. Let's be, let's be honest about the quality of, a, of some of those things. I, when I was a kid, I loved the love song. Oh, then you don't believe in love songs. I loved that song. And it's very humble. It's very cool. But in comparison to what came out, let's say, on the first two albums, what would you have taken off in order to put the love song on there? There needed to have been a third album. I mean, seriously, probably from between the first year and the second year. Songs, songs that I would have focused on, definitely It's Time That I Knew You Better, which did end up on a, on a rarities, uh, David Cassidy's Partridge Family Favorites. It ended up on that. But Sunshine Eyes, another Cashman West song, but Sunshine Eyes was a great recording. Uh, it was very fully orchestrated and full and well, you know, well produced. I don't know why that never came out. God Bless You Girl. But um, God Bless You Girl is another song where the feel is perfect. Feel is great. That's a great recording, except that they wanted to leave the God aspect out. So they were a little too, you know, yeah, afraid of that. Plus also, I think, Listen to the Sound. John Hill's Listen to the Sound was supposed to, well, I think it was pitched as a theme song for the series. I think Listen to the Sound was something he pitched for the second season. You know, and then there are those stray, the stray things which fall into the, is it a David Cassidy demo or is it a Partridge Family, you know, song like, um, what is that rocker? Uh, Warm My Soul that he recorded later for his second album. It's like another, there's another, the gray area of whether that 
was truly recorded for the Partridge Family, that they took a picture. It sounds like the Partridge Family, as far as background vocals, it sounds like it's something that could have gone on uh, maybe the second album. Again, it, it, there's a lot of loose categorizing that happened with some of those recordings. Um, there was also a recording that we know he did of I'll Be Your Magician. Yeah, I heard Danny that. put on to his solo album. <laughs> And another song as well, you know, in the first season, To Be Lovers, where we just have David's vocals yeah. halfway through the song. Did yeah. he ever record the full song? It makes sense. He would have. Yeah. And the other one, On the Road. Where there's a full take on him. We know, we know that, as you say, we know that exists. I know, but listen to that vocal. I mean, on it, but that's not the one we would have wanted. Um, the, the one that, that's on the record, I think, is, and I think On the Road was pitched by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde for the, uh, for, as a theme song also for the series. I mean, listen, look at the lyrics on that. You told me that you'd produced a box set with Rupert Holmes. I just wonder if he, if he ever spoke to you about how he wrote Echo Valley and yeah, he, 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 yes. the interpretation of his song. He loved the interpretation, loved it, loved it. Rupert loves it. Rupert, Rupert is nothing but positive. And it explains why Barbara Streisand would have wanted him to, you know, work with her on her uh, Butterfly album and to Star is Born and stuff like that. He's been, he has his tentacles and everything. He was uh, Mystery of Edwin Drood, um, oh, other musicals, Curtains. He's done, he's been associated with so many things, so many, and a couple of books. I'll go to Echo Valley 26809 in a second, but I want to give you just how intense this guy was. Epic signed him. Echo had something to do with it. Like, his name started to get around. And I think Echo Valley 26809 was, was known by a lot of people. So you're never going to get people to admit that they loved the Partridge family then, whenever. But Sound Magazine, I'm imagining, made its rounds. And a lot of people knew what that record was. I believe it maybe contributed if it weren't one of the factors, um, if it weren't the main factor, rather, which I, I doubt it was. But he got a deal that Epic, widescreen was the name of the album, an amazing album for the time. It was a concept album based on media, uh, based on movies, television, anything that had to, storytelling. And they were all like basically scripts. All the songs were scripts to things that would have happened in bittersweet movies or, you know, whatever. And, and Barbara recorded three songs from that album on her Butterfly, uh, on her Butterfly album. He was intense. He was really great. And he had a string of albums. On the box set that I did with him, years later, I'm at Universal. And I reached out to him because we had at Universal, we owned four of his albums, three of his albums, three of his albums. So I reached out to him and I said, how about a box of Thane Tierney, who was my cohort. He was running a little licensing within the division label called Hippo. But the Rupert Holmes project, he loved because he loved Rupert and he made it happen. He just made it happen. But we got all of his albums together on this box set. Uh, there was a disc of demos and B-sides and stuff, an additional disc. So it was four CDs of two albums each of his eight albums. Right, and then the four, the fifth album, the fifth CD rather, was of the of unreleased material. Uh, for instance, the demos he pitched Barbara for A Star Is Born, songs that never made it into that. The original versions of the Pina Colada song and things, you know, early versions of those. He recorded three songs for that, three originals for that. One was Echo Valley Two Six Eight Oh Nine. It was a really sweet version. It, this these are the last recordings that I think he did with the three that he did for my for the for the box set. He really liked David's version of Echo Valley Two Six Eight Oh Nine. Was it his emotional delivery of it? He, he basically let me know how much he liked it. That he, it was like a really he really liked it. But knowing Rupert, I'm imagining I'll put words in his mouth. Um, <clears throat> it, it, I'm imagining that it was because it was it was an exact record. It was a, it was the perfect pop record, and it should have been a single. And I think that. It's been included on virtually everything when they do compilations. They always include Echo Valley 26809 on there. 
Yeah. It's just such a loved song. And everybody knows that. If you say Echo Valley, they'll fill in 26809. Yeah. A lot of people know that. And they don't, some of them don't even know why they know that. Well, how so many Rick officers today you know, just dialed that number? <laughs> yeah, the poor person on the other end of that. Oh my God, I don't want to own that number. <laughs> Especially back then, they had to have tested it. They had to have either claimed the number or tested it. They couldn't subject somebody to that. Louise, are you revealing that you called that number? <laughs> I am guilty, sir. Oh, nice. That's great. That's a great story. <laughs> One real quick thing about that. Love is all I ever needed. I walked into, uh, oh God, and it's, Bob Hillman is connected to this and my old musical partner is connected to this. Years and years and years later, now we're talking about, I guess the 90s, maybe around 97. There was a place called the Sidewalk Cafe, still is I think in the city, uh, in the village. My old musical partner, Steve Mosto, who I had a group called the Almost Brothers with, and I, I, he's a frequent co-writer with me, songwriter. He was playing on his own and I went to go see him. He did great. He had his own audience. Right after him was a guy named Bob Hillman. We were packing up. I was helping Steve leave. And Bob set up, and it was just him and I think an acoustic guitar. I think that was really it. He was amazing. And then from, and from that time, I was working at Razor and Tie, who, by the way, we had reissued the Partridge Family re, uh, you know, album, some of them, uh, just to complete the, the Sound Magazine story. I know these stories are long and I apologize totally. It's just that I'm in the moment as I'm telling these stories. Oh, no, um, after Bob, I made friends with him and I later worked with him and I hooked him up with Tommy West to produce his records. Uh, I did his first demos with him and then he went on to Cash with Cashman West. He went on to Tommy to, to who ended up producing him. But love is all I ever needed. That's where I'm heading. Okay. So love, love it. So the guy, I'm now like making friends with Bob and we're leaving. I'm walking him out of the place and all of a sudden I hear it. Dun -dun, dun -dun, dun -dun, dun -dun. And I'm like, wait a minute, I know that song. Is that the, is, is that on Muzak? Oh, that's cool. I got to go tell the, you know, Sidewalk Cafe people that's cool to play Partridge Family on Muzak. And I go in there. There's this guy sitting at piano playing Love is All I Ever Needed. So it was the trifecta that night. It was like, what the heck is like, how cosmic is this? So it, and he did a great version. And then I went to him and I said, that is a great David Cassidy song. What, you know, how did you, how did you discover it? And he kind of didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to talk about how, you know, it was sort of like in his mind, I guess, it still was uncool or whatever, uh, where, however, whatever it was, but he didn't want to talk about it being a David Cassidy song. Perfect album. I think it's just, it's, it's a, it's a, if there isn't, if it isn't a 10, it's a 9.99. I mean, for him to have written that at such a young age. I think David had a depth beyond what a, what a, a I'll say kid. Why not? A kid his age would have had, uh, had to have had. He saw it all also, you know, figure with a person with a kid's brain development, myelination doesn't stop until 25. He's in the process of still having connections make and, and uh, get gotten rid of where, you know, the, that little box of connections is making, making, looking at the world and going, oh, this is how it works in order to survive in the world. Yeah. So all of the, all the awful stuff that I think that he was going through made him, my, my point is it, it made him more mature. And I guess it also separated him from a lot of the, a lot of his contemporaries. And it, just in the general sense, where do you go after being the biggest, bigger than Elvis and bigger than the Beatles in the world? Where do you go after that? And having that sort of, I'm not good enough thing going on, you know, trying to please dad, maybe not so much trying to please dad. I'm thinking years later, not looking at this, I'm going, maybe not so much to please dad, but to get the acceptance from someone who he didn't have. There was no one in, um, I believe, there was no one in his life he could have gotten the, the acceptance from that would have made him feel complete. Like, yes, I'm a good person. I finally did it. 
There were people in his life that did that, but there was nobody who did the foundation, who, who put in the circuitry into his system that made him feel like, I am a, you know what, I am pretty talented. I am a, a pretty good guy without, you know, without egomaniacal. <laughs> it's having that self-belief that you are good enough. I mean, if people tell you on a regular basis that you're no good, eventually right. you're going to start to believe them. Right. And he knew so, he was, he wanted to be, and he wanted to be hip, right? Yeah. He wanted to be accepted by that crowd because he really loves that kind of music. He loved rock music over C.C. Ryder on his live album. And he's doing those kind of songs. That's where his heart is. But he's, but, you know, he's working overtime, having to do a lot of pop stuff that he doesn't have to, that he has to crank out and have no relationship with over the Partridge family years. I mean, he did good performances in a lot of the first, I, th I believe the first at least two years of that material, he was having some connection with. And then I think after that, some of that, a lot of that stuff was phoned in because of his relationship with Wes. But even the relationship with Wes, that could have helped. You know what I mean? There were people in his life where it could have been like, not that Wes exploited him, but it could have been people in his life where he was perceiving they don't want something out of me. Yeah. And, and they're letting me, they're giving me what I need spiritually, psychologically, and, and love. And I don't, I'm not sure he ever got that. The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Do you consider his RCA work his best work? Yes. Uh, well, Cherish Album, How Do You Beat That? That's another amazing album. That Cherish Album, every single, for me, every single song on that, it's like the companion to, uh, to Sound Magazine. So yeah. I believe from, a, from an extension, he's reading those songs like they're his songs. I believe probably it was because he was so happy to have done his first album. You know, this is me separate from the Partridge family. So here's how I am. And then the Rock Me Baby album comes along and it's sort of like, well, there's something, there's friction, there's something going on here. He may be doing more of what he wanted to do, but you can feel the rub. You can feel the, the you can feel the, something's not right here. I mean, that's my impression. I, maybe not everybody else's. Everybody else is probably like, that's his best album, man. What are you saying? But anyway, I believe that there, I felt the, fr the friction on there and I never really warmed up to that album with the exception of a few, so a couple of songs here and there. Uh, but that first album, I think he connected with because he was, ex I believe, I bet, he was excited about uh, having his first album out there. And then also um, his RCA material, he had more control over. You know, he, he, with Bruce Johnson, I'm imagining they went into the studio. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm imagining when they went into the studio, he had the party, I'm a solo artist atmosphere without the pressure of having to deliver to the record company. That first album is a concept album for the most part. Yeah. I mean, it's arguable what this could be the night. I mean, everybody is like, oh man, that's one of the best. Okay, it's a great song. It's a cool recording. But in the whole theme of the album, it's one of the ones that sticks out as sort of not, not mixing with the rest of the project. But that, I'm not saying that in any kind of bad way. I'm saying that in a way that's like, he had more control over it. Whether he made the best decisions or not, that's, that's debatable, especially by the time you get to the third RCA album. Um, a lot of that, I think, is when he's with Jerry Beckley and all that. I think that that was, that was more self-indulgent than Bruce Johnson probably allowed him to be. That second album should have been huge. That second album had how many singles, potential hit singles on there? January, On Fire, um, uh, Tomorrow, some, uh, Breaking Down Again. Breaking Down Again. Why wasn't that a top 10 record? You know, Because it was David Cassidy. That's the shame there. I guess if somebody were to do a deep dive at RCA uh, about that story, uh, I bet you find that those people were as unconvinced about David Cassidy being an artistic artist as they would have been during his Partridge family and Bell Records years. Right. You know, I, the prejudice, in other words, that prejudice followed him. By the third album, he sort of, I think he sees the writing on the wall, even with his RCA stuff. 
you know, it's like, they're not going to, they're not going to break me. So I'm just going to kind of do what I want or whatever. And I don't know why, I don't know what the story is, why Bruce Johnson didn't produce that last one because they did, he did such a great job with the two before. But I think, yes, I do think that those, that's his best. Well, let's put it this way. I think that's his most personal material. How in the world, after everybody who's, you know, other than the Leonard Cohen song, Hallelujah, everybody with a, with a microphone has recorded Get It Up For Love. And, and no, there's been no problem with them. But no, when David Cassidy records it, it's banned. You know, what is that? What is that? You know, it's like built-in prejudice is how I looked at that. But the average white band did a cover of it. The comparison, David's has got far more grit to it. Well, yeah, no, David's was aiming at, I don't just want to hit single, I want to make this mine. The production was just head and shoulders above anything else. And you compare that back to back. Yeah. And though you've got the average white band doing it with Ben E. King. Yeah. It's like, guys, this is a hip song. What, what's wrong with you? Just, yeah. yeah. David's just stands above it. Do you yeah. believe that he carried so much baggage with him from Keith Partridge that people couldn't look beyond the idolatry and actually see the man for the talent that he had? Oh, I agree with you totally, 100%. And I think that, or I wouldn't say most people, I know people like me who were kind of loyal through the years. I, was, I would, of course, go, oh, David, come on, you know, every once in a while. But I was pretty loyal to, I, I knew where he was coming from. It was like I knew him because I'd known all of his music. You know what I mean? And I think that, they, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think they accepted him because as you're seeing the phenomenon, I'm going to get political here for a second. Let's say as a social experiment, you could look at the last four years, like our, this whole concept of fake news. Oh, it's fake news. But you know, that whole thing. We have been so brainwashed. If you say something over and over and over and over and over and over and over, somebody, you hear it enough, you're beaten up, you're brainwashed. Yeah, yeah. You believe it. And I believe that was brainwashing. Nobody gave him a, I believe what happened was they wouldn't, they didn't even give the, oh, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that. They wouldn't give his music a chance because they knew who it was. My example is when I went to, I went to Xavier High School, it was this Catholic military high school in New York. I'd had enough, I loved the school. I had a great time there. A lot of camaraderie, a lot of fun stuff. But then they wanted us to start memorizing Bible verses and I was out. So I went to a private school uptown to a place called Baldwin. There was a friend, Peter, had him over my house. This kid was a cool kid in Baldwin. And I had made friends with him. And I brought him over the house because we bonded over, I think, Joni Mitchell's Miles of Isles album. I played Peter the first, the second side, the higher they climbed. He heard that and he was like, who is this guy? That's really cool stuff. And I went, David Cassidy, and he went, F you, you know, like he was really pissed that I played him yes, that album yeah. and then didn't tell me who it was and he committed to liking it. So yeah, that's, I think it shows it all right there. That's where I could have played it for even more people and they would have gone, especially after hearing Get It Up For Love and stuff, they would have gone, that's, that is awesome, who is this? That, but that really, I don't know why I did that, but I felt like I had to do it to validate how, how cool, how cool that record was. Yeah, to educate and enlighten people you know, it's, it's like when Donny Osmond brought out his Soldier of Love and it was played and nobody knew. That it was happening. Yeah. And it yeah. was like, wow, that's really cool. We really love <laughs> that. Now, had they known in advance, they would have immediately, their brainwash, as you say, would have said, nope, don't want to know. You know, the same thing happened with Lion and myself with David. Stations weren't, uh, I, think the, I think that was an actual marketing plan where they were putting it out there and they were sending it in forms like, 
I don't know what happened, but they sent it out there without an emphasis on that being David Cassidy and they got stations to play it. And then the stations then had some fun with it when they, when they realized who it was and the stations were, were saying, can you guess who this artist was? You know, it's, uh, it's a shame. It's really the prejudice that ended up against David, uh, uh, that David had to fight because of his teen idoldom and because of the Partridge family over overexposure, I guess, um, you know. You see, over here, we saw him as an individual rock star. When he first arrives in, in the UK, he's wearing furry boots, a long dark coat, his hair's greasy. He looks like the quintessential rock star. I know you saw him at Madison Square Garden. You can't watch the Partridge family after you've seen him live in concert. Because right. This is the real David and this is a character you're playing as, you know, yeah. it was just stamped on his forehead that you're Keith Partridge and it's like, no, he isn't. Yeah. What was your experience of Madison? Oh, God. Well, first of all, I want to say, had we had that experience, I'll bet you David would have fared better as a solo artist. Because let's look at all the pop artists that were coming out of that era. His records were just as good. But we got the Partridge family first. So we didn't have the experience of our, of our um, sister nation who, who knows better because they gave us the Beatles. The, the experience was great. I took a Deirdre. That was the first date in my life. And I took her to the car. My father, I don't know how my father did this. My father ended up getting tickets to, uh, to this concert. He was um, a building inspector in New York. Uh, you know, I'm just wondering, Dad, how did you get those tickets? Because he knew nothing about how to buy rock concert tickets. I, and I'm a kid. I don't know anything about that. But he did it to me as a, did it for me as a surprise because he knew that I, used, I was watching Partridge Family all the time in the house. Because my dad, when I went to college, he got rid of all my, all my memorabilia. Um, he thought, oh, that's for that's kid stuff. He got rid of all my, I had acetates of all the old, uh, of the unreleased songs. Um, I had acetates of everything. I had um, all the songs, all of them on acetates. I had all the Partridge Family cards. I had memorabilia galore. Uh, I took I took Deirdre. It was the craziest experience because there were so many people. It, there was a there was a din. The thing I'll remember forever is there was a din of screaming through the whole stadium. That almost had we not been in where we were, my dad got us great seats. We were like ten rows from the front. I wish I'd held on to the ticket. I probably uh, David was like right there. Um, and Kim Carnes, well, Kim Ellingson at the time, who was singing background for his stuff. She was like, I can remember her and her, her husband, I guess, at the, were right there at another microphone. I, can rem I could just see the layouts as if it were yesterday. It was the screaming almost drowned out the sound, even as close as we were to the stage. But thank God we were as close as we were because I was able to hear everything. Oh. And he, played, he, played, he played, you know, I, I, you know things like uh, I Am a Clown, I think was in that concert. Um, I think it was mostly the stuff from the first album, and I think it was quick. A number of people who were there have told me this. His emotional rendition of My First Night Alone Without You. Oh, that's it. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm sorry. It's not I Am A Clown. My First Night Alone Without You was so over the top. Yes. Oh, high five to whoever that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of us have been saying for years, where is clear audio of that concert? Where yeah. is the concert footage? There must yeah. be more than we've seen. How did the compilation of When I'm a Rock and Roll Star, the DC collection, come about? How okay. difficult is it to put a compilation CD together? In those days, I was working for Razor and Tie, Cliff Chenfeld and Craig Balsam, my favorite, a couple of my favorite bosses I've ever had. I loved working for them. They had done The Partridge Family. They put out a Cashman and West collection that I put together. Um, so we had become friends just from association. 
so I, they hired me over there basically to oversee production for, for in the very beginning. But then they knew that I had a knowledge of music. So they brought me into the, uh, and they knew my history, my recording history, and they knew my connection with Tommy West, you know, being virtually a family member, which I guess we can get to eventually. Uh, Cliff and Craig decided, you know, what else can we do with the Partridge family? I thought, okay, well, what about something that's really rare? Why not put out his RCA stuff? The problem with David's material and the reason why they could never do a collection of stuff, because David was involved. Now, David was pals with them. David, uh, when they did the Partridge family stuff in relation to TV land, having rolled out the, the television show, it was all coordinated. There was a Partridge family bus, I think, that, that they had gotten, to get, gotten together for all that. So their relationship, why I'm saying this is because the relationship with David and, and, and the, the, the guys was tight. I don't know how I turned the corner on this, but because Arista had a, the stipulation where David had to be involved and had to oversee whatever the deal was with collections, and because we were dealing with RCA, which didn't have that stipulation, we decided for whatever reason, and I think it was possibly because David was uh, unreachable for a while or something. I think the guys reached out to him once to let him know that we were doing this. Maybe would you like to get involved? It's possible that the word he never, you know, however in those days was it voicemail? It wasn't voicemail, it was like answering machines. So it's possible that he just never got the message, whatever that was. There was an attempt to, to reach him to say, hey, you know, would you like to would you like to be part of this? And I don't think he ever responded. What happened was I ended up overseeing that. And I looked at the albums and I tried to, I was like trying to, you know, my usual, I was trying to fantasize what would an album, what would a David Cassidy album sound like <clears throat> with all like what I thought was the strongest material from the three albums and sequenced in such a way that it came off like an album. <clears throat> that was the mission. <clears throat> Excuse me. It wasn't so much to make a compilation with David because then I would have just thrown um, a sequential, a chronological thing together. I wanted this thing to go from song to song to song and feel like it was an album. For You can get that feel with, you can, you can sort of see that when I go from uh, when I'm a rock and roll star into, uh, into I write the songs into um, common, uh, not common thief, uh, yeah. It is Common Thief, right, which I love. It's another another of his recordings I love. But that whole sequence was meant to tell a story. And they were going to charge us for the comedy routine. I really wanted the comedy routine before it. So it was like, okay, is there a way to make this work? And it just so happens David has just enough dialogue right before the song. That introduces the concept of, hey, I'm down on my luck. So that, that whole trilogy of songs kind of works. And, and then there were other things, like the first three or four songs was meant to like keep you in that get it up for love groove. Hey, you like hit singles? Well, he had a few, here they are. And it wasn't like to, and it went, it was meant to be musical. It wasn't meant to really, it wasn't really meant to put all the singles together, but it was meant to to give that effect of like, look how strong this stuff is. And then I think Darlin was the fourth of those, was it? Uh, yes, yes it was. Okay. You had get it up for love, damned if this ain't love, January yeah. and Darlin. We could have used anything from the three albums. And I probably, and I was allowed to use single versions, like if I wanted to do that, but I didn't really want to do that, except there is one mistake on there. I relied on the studio and I didn't A-B it uh, properly. I just trusted that, uh, I trusted that I got the right uh, version on there. Darlin is, a, is another take, or at least another, it's not another mix, it's more like a longer take or slightly longer version of what we ended up with. Um, my feeling is that Darlin, the one that's on there is probably just another mix. Um, but it either was mislabeled or whatever, but I wanted the, I think I was asking for the single version and I ended up with that. Maybe I could be accused of overthinking this, but I really wanted it to come off like an album and, and something David would have liked. Like to, David would have seen that there was actual effort that went into this darn thing to spotlight his great material 
and to give it one more shot as far as, okay, in the land of CDs, here's a David album that you could uh, listen to top to bottom and really feel like it was an album. By the time it hits the last three, the um, Getting It In The Streets songs, that got a little rough. There was no place to put those songs within the other sequence to make it still feel like an album, you know? So as you, as you get there, it was like I did the best with, with what I had there. And I just kept basically the sequence of the, those three songs, which to me were the strongest from, I like other songs on there, but there were three, those three I thought were the strongest as far as the potential of having them have been, have been hits. Cruise to Harlem was a wonderful artistic approach arrangement wise that he went there. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. So that was the story behind that album. And then David called, I did, it doesn't have a nice ending that David called and he was mad at the guys uh, for having put it out. Yeah. Really? He was mad at us because he, uh, yeah, because he felt like, he felt like we did it behind his back, but we didn't do it behind his back. There was an outreach. Um, and I can't, I, you know, I just can't, I don't remember the specifics of the outreach, but there was an outreach. I could tell you that. I'm, I'm thinking that it was a, it was a, it was a voicemail or something, or it was the label reaching out. I, you have to realize I've worked with, I've worked with a lot of artists and I've done a ton of compilations and reissues over the years. And I don't, some of these stories may get a little crosswired, but I believe the guys always had great intentions with him because he was their friend. From your point of view, had it been worth doing? Did it highlight David's musical talent to a wider audience outside of the fan base? I think I thought so. I mean, I thought so, yeah, as I was doing it. And also the problem, Lisa Sutton did a wonderful, she was of course the one, the go-to person for all the Partridge Family, David Cassidy stuff. And she had some input as far as I think the artwork on there, the cover, she did a great job with the cover, but I'm not sure that it might've been, it might've been counterintuitive. Like it captured David as far as the image of what David, you know, the whole deal, you knew that was David Cassidy when you saw that cover. And from a marketing perspective, that is the, again, the intuitive thing to do, the logical thing to do. But my feeling is possibly it could have been hipped up a little bit. Like it could have gone a little more. She did the exact right thing. I don't think that we should have done it any other way. But I'm curious if that cover had been more artsy for him coming off as a singer songwriter, as opposed to coming off like, you know, because you have to know the story of the album, like when I'm a rock uh, of uh, the higher they climb, you have to know that story in order to appreciate the concept of it but if you just look at the cover you're going oh god you know if you're somebody who doesn't like david you're still not going to like him from that cover because you'd have to turn it over to see the concept the cover turn it over and there's the star and you know there's the burned out stuff so maybe it might have fared even better had we approached it as like the david cassidy you didn't know see i guess that was the toss-up the partridge family had a had a, a a huge those partridge family albums cds sold like crazy at Razor and Tide relative to the launch from TV land and relative to David helping to promote them and all that. So I'm imagining, as I said before, the intuitive thing would have been to, to focus on that image of David, but I am just curious. I am wondering if we had promoted it a little slightly differently, if that had, if, if it would have been appreciated in another kind of way where people would have talked about it in a way that's like, yeah, you know, that other material he did was pretty, that was pretty cool. He, he really reached with some of this stuff. Get it up for love. Yeah, why wasn't that a hit? I mean, it is such, as we said earlier, it's such a dynamic song. It's lost in the midst yeah. of time. It's wrong that he is pigeonholed in this way. Yes. Because he was far more than just the sum of being a, a teen idol. Yeah. I mean, when I saw him in concert, the times that I saw him, drum solos, I mean, five-minute drum solos, come on. No one's ever seen it. Yeah. You know, if people could see the footage... They go, wow, he couldn't yeah. just sing. He could play a guitar, he could play the piano, he could play the drums. His versions of the uh, classics like Delta Lady 
and as we said earlier, Jenny, Jenny, CC Rider. It was real. This is the rock star he wanted to be. And yeah. he wanted, I'm sure, people to accept him. I'll bet you that Love Is All I Ever Needed in his head was even rougher than that recording. Yes. I'll bet you in his mind that had to have been a harder rock song. Yeah. Yes. You can hear it. The, the melody just lent itself to like, that's a rocker. How oh. difficult will it now be that we all want to have this definitive deluxe box set, the unreleased back catalogue, the demos, the alternative yeah. versions? How difficult is it going to be to get that out? Personally, see, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what's going on, but going on in the estate, right? So if the estate is having maybe issues with what's the ownership, who's getting the royalties, who's this, what's it, who controls what? That could be right now what's holding this up, okay. But traditionally, there's been a fear, and David, there's been, you know, uh, there's been pushback from David where he's, when he, he can't, he has to be involved in all of the, uh, the, um, the Bell Records, therefore legacy stuff. There are people who have worked the catalog over at Legacy um, with very good intentions, and I feel they have an attachment to the Partridge family and David Cassidy material. The question is, how real would it be that something could finally get out there? I worked on a lot of collections over my, over my life. And the one thing that I found worked more than anything else is that come hell or high water <clears throat> uh, approach. Like if, if you build it, they will come. I mean, that's, I guess, a, a corny way of putting it. Possibly if somebody is truly determined and they get in the, the face of the people who are with licensing and the people who are the gatekeepers of that material and go, listen, you've got to move on this. You've got to move on this stuff. Get it out there. there are, the audience is only going to be alive for, for a certain amount more years, you know? So my answer to, is it possible? I think it absolutely is possible. I am absolutely sure that if somebody came out of the mix and was like, we want to license this box set, what do we have to do? You tell us what we have to do. There's got to be a way to do it. There's other material. There's unreleased material that they've put out over the years. So it isn't like they can't access this stuff. And this stuff is, is bootleg all over the place. So it's like, why not? It's like Bob Dylan. What's the, the logic is like the Bob Dylan stuff. He eventually got all his bootleg stuff out there because it's like, you know what? He's sick of not getting royalties on his, on his uh, uh, recordings. So it's like, okay, let's get it out there. The fans want it. Let's get it out there. There is a fan fever with the Partridge family and David Cassidy that keeps getting stoked whenever there's a reissue. What does that tell you? So I've been, you know, I've been gently bugging behind the scenes. I know people and whatever's tying all of this up is tying it up. It is possible that look at, look at how record companies function these days. <clears throat> they may see it in the context of there's not enough money to be made here. We may be in the zone where it's purely money. They're not seeing the monetization that could be there. They're not understanding the, the fan base and they're not understanding the moment in time that they're faced with. Hopefully they will someday. Maybe in our lifetimes, <laughs> we'll see this stuff eventually come out because if it doesn't, uh, these bootlegs are gonna be the only way we get stuff and the bootlegs, as you know, they kind of suck. You know what, they, maybe in our lifetimes, we might see if they can't get this out, if the third parties can't license this, this project out and, and if the, the people involved had a relationship with the label, that had more gravitas, if they made the money from television projects or something like that, then more likely than not, they would be in the, they would, they would get what they wanted. Or at least the, door, the gate would be a little more open. It's so important to his legacy. It's so important for the history of music. We look at it like that. It's interesting because I look at it like that. Now I've worked with a lot of artists over, over the years, as far as, you know, compilations, reissues, DVDs, whatever. I think I've gotten 
as nerdy as I am about all this, I've had a cross spread. Like I said in the beginning, I like every kind of music, and I've, 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 I understand where the artists are coming from. And I, my boss, Andy McKay, I think hired me. That was one of the reasons why he hired me is because you were. He, he said to me, "You were an art. You were an artist." Or I get the concept of the artist, and I always fought for the artist, whether it be with Joni Mitchell or whoever it was, Steve Forbert, David Coverdale. Uh, I, I always fought for the artist. Yeah, I think if we were to come back to the uh, to the to the concept of getting stuff out that is David's unreleased material and all that, whoever is in these loops, you have to put yourself out there. You just do because otherwise, why else are you here? It wasn't so much the product. It wasn't the product that that I was able to get out the door. And I say I meaning the energy that I put into it to to have the label put it out. That's really what I mean. But it, it, isn't, it isn't that, it isn't the actual product, but it, it was the process. It was knowing you're doing the right thing. And I think those who are in the loop who can do something about this, even people who are trying to license the stuff, whoever you are, you don't ask, you don't get. And again, like I said earlier, we don't know what's going on with the estate. Is the estate holding stuff up that was pitched to the estate? It's like, hey, this certain company wants to get a box set out. You know, can we get the sign off from you guys? We don't know. We just don't know anything about this. Over the years, we've all pieced together little bits of information and we know that when he recorded the Dreams album, there were 50 tracks laid down. God. Where are they? With the Frank Sinatra stuff, I think they've gotten out a lot of stuff that was unreleased over the years. With Frank, I think it was a matter of he would record and then they would release three albums a year. So with him, it's a little harder. But think of the classic crooners or the classic singers or, you know, who who else in David's world, teen idol wise even? Let's look at like Ricky Nelson. All that stuff for the most part is out. You've got people that know the older material and there's oh, there's like one shot now and there aren't many years left. And you would think that well, everybody would be on the same page. You almost have to go there. You almost have to be like, as opposed to, I mean, at this point, as opposed to, hey, it'll make a lot of money in physical. It will. I mean, I think it will because I think people, the, the audience will still buy CDs and even maybe vinyl if they want to put out some vinyl on this stuff. But I think CDs is probably the safer way to go. But if they put out CDs on, on a lot of this material, there is still that audience that is buying CDs and it just happens to be us. But, um, you know, they've got to act on it now. They've got to get this stuff out now, is my opinion. They really do. The market is here for it. It is. Fans want it desperately. We've got nothing else. And we know the material is out there. So let's go back to your career. Oh, that old thing? That old thing, yeah. (laughs) My career in quotes. (laughs) But no, your relationship with Tony Romeo, I wonder where you rate him as a lyricist. Oh, that's hard. He has an unreleased album called Moonwagon on Life Song that he, he, the Cashman and West were going to put out. And then their marketing people, they had Gross and Cups, who was a marketing team, and then they became part of Life Song. And they were like considered the superb, um, uh, superb marketing people. So they, def- and they were vice presidents over there, I think. So it, they, they feigned to them as far as how to market this and what to do with it. And I think perspective was it's too sophisticated. So Tony had a concept album of of basically if you've listened to the Eric Carmen's Overnight Sensation, mm. you get the idea for the album. Oh, uh, yeah, so that was the concept yeah. album. And it's called Moonwagon. And uh, I think maybe because one of the songs had a lyric on Moonwagon in it. Uh, it was wonderful, but it was over the head of everybody. It sounded like the Beach Boys. He did a really great, it, it really was a lot of fun. Yeah, and so, so that album, 
showed just how well he could write. And then I think Tony's, let's look at it like this. People don't realize or they don't think of Smokey Robinson as being one of the great writers of, song, of all time, one of the great songwriters, because it's so subtle. Because what he's doing is he's doing these, uh, he's doing these, huge, these huge concepts in language that everyone can hear. Tony, I believe, had that ability. He knew the common person. He was the common person. He loved eating at Cracker Barrels. He was an amazing guy. He, I think his lyrics, so, the, so my feeling about his lyrics were that I don't, Indian Lake, I mean, he made a commercial out of a concept that is a little higher ends than not. That's a really strange concept to be writing and to have a hit with. He, he did that over and over. I heard some unreleased stuff by him, Waco was one of the songs that uh, I, I thought was amazing. Oh, uh, Morning Rider on the Road. His, my feeling is his lyrics captured, to your point, he, his lyrics captured something that was more, more sophisticated, more uh, sometimes spiritual, sometimes more highbrow, more higher end, than, uh, more intellectual than you would think because the delivery was so subtle in the lyrics in the same way that, that, a, uh, that a, a Smokey Robinson was able to do. Look at the lyrics of the way you do the things you do. Look at those lyrics. It's like, yeah. wow. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like he said so much in one song. I mean, basically, it, it is not, it is not um, What a Wonderful World. It is not Sam Cooke's What a Wonderful World. That did something else. It is, it is something that brought in this and that and that and that, and it synthesized it all into one really cool song, one really cool item. And that's what Tony did, I think, in every song. Summer Days. Summer Days is a perfect uh, encapsulate. I felt, I mean, production, sure. But look at the lyrics. How would you have gotten there without that? Look at Play Me, which, by the way, was pitched to me and uh, Steve Mosto, my almost brother, who I recorded with as the Almost Brothers. Um, uh, Tony pitched it to us. At the time, the label, the label wanted me to write all the material because they were making money off of Mary Tyler Moore's label. The label wanted me to make, uh, to, they wanted to make recordings with us of my material because they would make money off of my publishing. They made more money off me <clears throat> if I did that. So having outside material, even though Tommy pitched it, Tommy wasn't on board with that. Tommy was just purely about do the right record. I mean, he, he, Tommy was the fan of the, was the friend of the artist. So Play Me was pitched and I loved it. And then I said to him afterwards, I said to Tommy after, I said, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I don't know if I could do that. I love the song. I've always loved the song. And he went, you always loved the song? And I said, yeah, that was recorded on David Cassidy's uh, uh, Dreams Are Nothing More Than Wishes album. And he said, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Tony didn't mention, but it didn't matter. I mean, Tony wasn't, the, I don't think Tony was, Tony, to Tony, it was like, who cares? I know that the Almost Brothers recorded, you know? Right. So Tony, I can remember him there. I remember him as we were listening to the song at, at MTM in Nashville in Tommy's office. He played it and I was like, I was beaming because I loved that, that song. And I think it was played and then I kind of knew what was going on, but it wasn't pitched. They did. They took their time the way they did this. I kind of knew what was going on, but they played the song. And then afterward, Tommy said, so what do you think? Is it something you and Steve could do? You know, I, so we almost recorded. Now I did want to record a Tony Romeo song, but we just didn't. That was a good one because it was about going to the Jersey shore and we were from the Northeast. But again, also image wise, it would cast me in, in we were in, we were doing alleged country music at the time. It wasn't really, it was an Everly Brothers uh, approach and our music, had more in common with them and Cashman and West recordings than it did with the country music. We just had country instruments on there for the most part. And we had that album that we did, the Almost Brothers had the hottest country art, country musicians that they had in town. Bordelina, we had all, sort, all sorts of amazing people. We had Al Delory who produced Glenn Campbell uh, and did those beautiful arrangements. He did the arrangements on our album. Girls Next Door, I had a hit with them. They were label mates and I wrote a song called Slow Boat to China 
um, that they recorded and they had a top 10 hit, hit with it. They were on our album too. We were sort of like the brother sisters group, you know? And uh, anyway, point, Al DeLore, like I said, he did a little string wrench. That was a legit, that was a really good, that was Tommy's in my opinion, other than the Jim Croce records. And the, there's one album by Jim Dawson. His name is a great songwriter who talking about RCA. He was on RCA. I think that's a classic album that never got re appreciated. I think Tommy's productions, Tommy West productions, Cashman West productions, that's my favorite of, out of everything is our album. I think he put so much love into it because I was, you know, like I said, I was basically a family member. He yeah. put any, and also he knew what he was doing with male duos because of the Cashman and West, you know, period that he went through. By the way, in my lifetime, if we want to relate this back to David and, and, and Partridge family, I, ha I did own at one point I had it and I don't know what happened to it over the years, but I had the a reel to reel of the eight songs, nine, nine songs, the Cashman and West pitched uh, West Farrell for the Partridge family. No. All of those songs were pitched before the show went on the air. All of them. Oh, except for, no, it was eight. And then there was one later on. And I'll tell you why, how that worked. They were, Wes was also looking for not only material for the show, but he was also looking for the theme song to the show. Cashman and West were now signed to Dunhill Records, Dunhill ABC. Cashman and West were really an, also a group called uh, Morning Mist. And they recorded the Kodak commercial. Kodak makes your pictures count, that thing. I remember you and the sunshine, that thing. So they recorded that. They weren't quite Cashman. They didn't call themselves Cashman West because it was a jingle. But they turned it into uh, California on my mind years later. West didn't produce that, but that was during that time. What was it? It's, um, uh, let's see if I can get this in order. Not in order of the sequence of this thing, but it's uh, only a moment ago. She'd rather have the rain. It's time that I knew you better. Uh, every song is you. Sunshine eyes. Come on, love. And, oh, um, one day at a time. Is that eight? No, that's seven because I left one out intentionally. I get it's time that I knew you better out of there and replace it with a song called Six Man Song Band. That was what they were pitching as the theme song for the first year. Second year, they pitched it for the second year. When word went out, we're going to change the theme song. Then they pitched it's time that I knew you better. That's the story of the, of the Cashman and West pitches. Anyway. I just wanted to go back to your very brief encounter with David when Tony took you to a concert. Tony and I had stayed in contact uh, for a while after I left Nashville. And there was a concert up in uh, near Boston. And Tony was lovely. Tony was wonderful. Uh, and he was, you know, he, it was a Cassidy concert. It was in a smallish club. And, De and Denny Bonaducci was opening. But I, I was briefly, I was introduced to David. And as I was about to go into, oh, you know, I'm so happy. You know, finally, after all these years, I get to meet you. This is early 90s. I was about to have a, this, I was going full on like I am with you. I'm about to go full on with David and it would have been fun. And then Tony was like there. I was like, we're all set up to go. And then somebody comes over and intercepts him and takes him up. He's like, David, we need you, whatever, whatever that deal was. And then pulled him away and was like, yeah. and then basically was like, you know, bye. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was like, after all these years, <laughs> This, this happens? Tony said, don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll meet him later. So then later comes after the concert and uh, he's gone. He just flies out of there. So I didn't get to meet him there. But Tony and I hung out for a little bit. That was fun. That, now I mentioned Danny, but I met Danny when he was doing a concert over at, uh, over at NYU in New York in the 80s, had to be mid 80s, had to be maybe 84, 85. <clears throat> so I'd had a music career based on initially starting being launched by having a Partridge Family Associations, right? So I went to him at, during a break and he was all friendly and chummy and he was about to, you know, I was about to have a great conversation with him. And I said, 
Dana, I, I, first of all, I just want to thank you because I, I wouldn't have had, you know, I wouldn't have been able to go to college. You know, the, the money came from the songwriting for Cash from the West. I wouldn't have been able to go to college. I wouldn't have been, you know, I had a lot of opportunity thanks to the Partridge family. So I wanted to thank you. So he looked at me and he walked away. Well, think about it. I didn't think at the time as a dumb kid. What, do you really want to have people come to you and say, hey, I've had a good life because of you? If your life has had some challenges. <clears throat> so, I mean, now we're Twitter friends, but <laughs> other than that, um, but um, I always felt badly about that because I was, I didn't put that, I didn't know how to put that together. I mean, you know, he's liked and responded to a couple of my tweets to him, but, but it, you know, that's something that if I could take that back, I'd take that back. But another relative Cassidy story is uh, another coulda, shoulda, woulda was when he came to Universal <clears throat> with Donny Osmond, uh, we had a television division there that was quite frankly, based on the model that we had at Razor and Tie when I was there. A guy named Bob Mercer was running the department. Really lovely guy. Bob Mercer was connected with everything. He gave Queen and Kate Bush their starts. He was at Island Records for a long time. Jimmy, he was associated with Jimmy Buffett for a long time. Uh, Bob Mercer is the, what's his name? Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. So anyway, uh, he had him over. They were doing a, a pitch to, I guess, the two of them to do a television commercial for a, a, an infomercial for a, a 70s line or something. I forgot what the product was going to be or what the product line was going to be. So the, he was in the building. I found out he was in the building and I was like, finally, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get, I'm going to get to see him. So as I was, I asked Bob's assistant, I said, Bob, where is David right now? And she said, don't go in there. Don't No, they're having a meeting. Don't go in. Don't go, whatever you do, don't go in there. So I'm like, he's in the building. I want to know where he is. You know, I asked her nicely, and then, but when, but when I started to get that kind of resistance, I pushed back a little bit. She told me where they were, and then they were in a meeting, and I wasn't going to barge in in a meeting to say hi. I didn't have that kind of clout at the company. I, I wasn't a VP at that point. So instead, I was like a little peeved. I went back to my office, did a little work, and then I went over to, uh, and then I had to use the restroom, so I went to the restroom. And as I was leaving the restroom, uh, you know, washing my hands, uh, all of a sudden, in walked David and... Uh, <laughs> And Donnie. And I'm like, here's my opportunity. So I turn, and then it's the two of them at the urinals, side by side, peeing. So I'm thinking, God, you're really cruel. You've done it again, yet again. I'm not going to start a conversation with two peeing men in a mess. <laughs> so, so I just, it was like, I just walked out. Oh. And I waited. I, I was kind of stalking a little bit. I was, I was hanging out a little bit for them to come out of the restroom. And then what do you think happened next? What do you think happened next? Somebody comes over and needed my, my attention for something because we we're working on, I forgot what the project was, a Neil Diamond, I think was working on a Neil Diamond and somebody needed some input from me like right then. It's like of all times, right now you need me to like, you know, so whatever. So I, I focused on that. And then, uh, and then as I was doing that, they walked out of the bathroom. I was too, it was too engaged. I was too engaged with the person in the conversation. Yeah. I noticed out of the corner of my eye what was going on, but there was no real civil way to like suddenly break out of what I was explaining to these people, to this person, and then to go run after Cassie and, 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 and Osmond. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to wrap up the conversation, right? So I'm wrapping up the conversation as quickly as I can. I'm thinking I can get them before they hit the elevator. And I turn and in the old days in Universal, there were like a, a million doors down this one corridor where we were at. They had slipped into some door and I had no idea where they were. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> wherever they were. And I went, oh wait, they must be in Bob Mercer's office. So I went to Bob Mercer's office and I go in there and he was British and he says, 
um, well, I'm not going to do a bad British accent, but he was like, <laughs> he was like, basically, sorry, lad, you just missed him. Oh. It was not to be. It was fate jumping in and having a laugh at my expense every single time. It was yeah. very funny. The urinal story is one of my favorites ever. I mean, that was really, that, I mean in any story, even if it were like normal people that you know, I just had to had to have a conversation with, I had to get their attention. It's like, uh, no, I can't. Not, not now. No. <laughs> in a bathroom at the urinals, what is the best icebreaker, so to speak? Yes. <laughs> nothing. Nothing <laughs> is the best icebreaker. Move on. <laughs> Did you get more enjoyment from songwriting or from singing? Alex was my was probably my best friend by the time I graduated high school. Anyway, Alex Commodore and I were playing like as a as almost a Croce and Maury Muleisen, his backup guitarist. We were playing as that kind of a duo. And of course, who do you think we were inspired by? You know, it was Jim Croce stuff. And that actually influenced my writing for a while too. So I ended up performing a lot with him, but I got the bug. I got the taste. I understood the concept and the whole, the, the whole deal with the audience and the energizing and the, and I, I started, I loved that. And so that's when I started to get a feel for performing and okay, I'm going to have to care about the way I look now, you know, and stuff like that. And you're, I'm, you know, I'm basically a, 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 my face was broken out and I'm a teenager that, you know, it's like a, it was an interesting phase, but songwriting was a thing I would, I, I to the, not to this day, but when it happens, it, it comes as a sort of a possession. Um, I, I just have to write and write and write and write and write and write. I, would, I have in the other room here, I have books of lyrics and lyrics and lyrics and stuff that only I, if I look at the lyrics, I mean, a lot of the melodies are gone now. I've recorded a lot of material in, in my life too. So I don't have, it isn't like I don't know a lot of stuff, but there are books in there of lyrics I'm looking at and I was like, and how did that song go? How did that melody go? You know, in those days I didn't have little baby tape recorders to, you know, to, to sing into. But I remember when I was working for a jingle company in New York between 82 and 84, I was writing jingles for the company and, and doing, you know, st and doing production work for the, uh, and, and assisting. I was walking around New York. I would walk around New York at night and these music would just come to me, songs would come to me, and I would just sing them into a tape recorder. And a lot of that came, a lot of that became the material that I recorded as the Almost Brothers. The Almost Brothers was originally a trio with Steve's sister, Joanne. We were like, to be honest, we were sort of Partridge Family-esque, although I like to look at that and say, Hollies, we were like the Hollies. She moved on to do her own thing, and then Steve and I were left with like, well, now what do we do? So we became an Everly Brothers duo. But a lot of that material during that period, between 82 and 84, I would walk around New York and sing into a mic, sing into this little uh, uh, micro recorder that I had, and then later on show it to the gang. But I wouldn't have had a career in music if it weren't for uh, definitely for uh, the Partridge Family and therefore David Cassidy. So it is interesting how, and I'm I'm imagining there are other stories like this, other people who had careers based on that. I, I think it's amazing, and I, I think that's part of the legacy. And that, that is why the, the back catalogue and everything he ever sang that he wrote needs to be put together in this deluxe box set and we have the definitive collection. I hope so. Someday, in our lifetimes, hopefully, and, and in a hurry. <laughs> Let's say it like that. Yes, so everybody right. get to work on that. <laughs> that's right. Well, Mike, it's been fascinating spending the afternoon with you. Thank you. You too. Yeah. You, you haven't had dinner. It's like nine o'clock your time or something, right? Uh, yeah, it's quarter to eight. Oh, my God. Not yet. <laughs> I can make you something real quick. I mean, it's like you're here. But, but. <laughs> so, this was definitely fun. Sorry for taking so much time, but I did have a lot of fun. It was cathartic, and I really love talking with you. You're, you're, you're lovely.
I, I, I've enjoyed it, Mike. Thank you for, uh, see there, for being spontaneous, I get nailed here. Uh, I was gonna pull you, oh, there it is. Thank you for the inclusion. Hey! You know I bought this, but it's just, it's really wonderful. You did a great job. This reads, this is like, you know what I mean? The way you approached it as far as like, hey fans, come on. <laughs> I tell oh, you a story. Thank you. It was really well done. Uh, I had such a wonderful response from people. The number of men that came forward, he influenced me. And because yeah. of him, I now write songs. I'm a producer, I'm a singer. Yeah. And even as sublime as they may be, like the Partridge Family, getting out old recordings of, of the Partridge Family may not be the most important thing in the whole scheme of the world. But on the other hand, it makes an awful lot of people happy. It corrects, it corrects something that we think might have been a mistake as far as uh, history. And it also, it also is a nice mission. If you're going to have a mission, that's a good one. Oh, oh, there's the story there that I didn't say. How can I be sure over headphones? When I was listening in, there was a story. My, my first sign, my first really good headphones as a teenager was Sennheiser, Sennheiser headphones, black, uh, it had a black head strap and it had two big yellow muffy things on the side. <laughs> and I can remember putting those things on <clears throat> and the song that played was How Can I Be Sure? And with the, with the, the, uh, the accordion and with the electric piano that's on there, it sounded brilliant. It was the, it was like, oh my God, I'm in heaven. And I bought this, I bought the Sennheisers based on this sudden weird cosmicy. all of a sudden, how can I be sure showing up on the headphones? Yeah, I didn't buy it because it was a message. I didn't think like that, but it sounded so darn good. Well, thank you so much for listening today. Towards the end there, Mike was referring to his story being included in my book, Cherish, David Cassidy, A Legacy of Love. So you can read more in Cherish about Mike's musical journey and the influence David had on his career. Now, if you are enjoying the David Cassidy Connections podcast, you can now find me on internet radio station 242 Radio with a new show on alternate Mondays. Just tune in to 242 Radio at 4pm UK time for my show, The LP Mix, a collection of music, chat and memories. The show is repeated the same week on Wednesdays and Fridays. So check the website 242radio.com for listings and timings. You can also listen via Apple, TuneIn Radio, BeTuner and all major streaming platforms. The next new episode will be on Monday, March the 8th. And among the regular features is one titled The David Cassidy Connections, where I look a bit more closely at his music. So if you feel like having an hour away from the pressures of everyday life, I'll see you over on 242 Radio and back here again very soon. <laughs>